Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Antiques, antiques, antiques. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. Yes, it's about antiques. I'm Josh Clark. There's a very eager, strangely eager, Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Uh, and uh, this is Stuff You Should Know. The podcast. The 100-year-old podcast. At least. Makes us an antique. Oh, yeah. You can tell, though, from the hair in my ears that I'm getting up there. Yeah. <laughs> Nose hair, ear hair. That's that's the joke about men, right? Is that hair leaves the places you want it and accumulates where you don't want it. So, Chuck, <laughs> um, you know how you think about certain things and uh, you, you come across like a concept like antiques, sure. collecting and buying and selling of old stuff. Yeah. That's my definition, but I think it's pretty much dead on. Sure. Um, and you think, okay, this has always been around. And you stop and think, no, that's probably not true. So when did it start? And I am very gratified to say we know when the popular uh, obsession with antiques began. Yeah. Isn't that weird? I didn't know this until I read this. And it actually ties in with the other one we're recording today. I know. Volcanoes. So here's a little piece of trivia for you that will eventually appear in a quiz. How are antiques and the Volcanoes podcast related? Strange clue. Herculaneum and Pompeii. (laughs) Mount Vesuvius. Binds these two, right? Yeah. So tell them about it, Chuckers. Well, there was a big old eruption uh, in 79 AD of Vesuvius, and it uh, pretty much buried Pompeii and the sister city, uh, Herculaneum, between about 20 feet of junk, of ash. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in the volcano. Which is not, podcast. you know, that's a bad thing for all the people there, but. It's a bad thing who, preserved, who died screaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it preserved them. Dying, screaming. I used to be so obsessed with that. With Pompeii? With national, anything I could get my hands on. It was like, look at that skeleton crawling toward the sea. Look at this guy who was caught in a boat. Really? It's awesome. Yeah, right. I loved it. So uh, many years after that, uh, Charles III of Spain in the seventeen early 1700s mm-hmm. said, hey, let's go uh, dig this stuff up and see what we can find. And it turns out they found a bunch of well-preserved uh, antiques. They and they, they became like, wow, old stuff is cool. Right. So these two entire cities were basically frozen in time and protected from looters. Yeah. And they started bringing these treasures up, and it actually sparked the neoclassical period or uh, movement, I guess, so in, in Europe. And Boom. that was like the antiques, right? Yeah. And then in America, so it's worldwide antiques, or at least Western uh popularity of antiques, right? Yeah. What about American, right? We can actually trace the moment when Americans got interested in antiques, too. It's, it's, I love this. Very cool. Once again, our, yeah. our 1776, you know, America's a young, budding country. A hundred years later, we celebrate our first little uh, centennial in Philadelphia, and they said, hey, you know what? We've got a hundred years worth of stuff we've been making, and let's let's showcase this. And all of a sudden, people were like, the same thing, like, Wow. This is kind of cool. I like this yeah. old stuff that we've got. That's exactly right. And that sparked an interest in early American furniture, I think, to start with, right? Yeah, I'm going to start buying it and I'm going to start collecting it. And it became a commodity. Right. So um, the, the 1876 exposition was yeah. what sparked an interest in antiques in the U.S. Yes. Uh, and if you, so we're going to focus mostly on American antiques. And by mostly, I mean exclusively, right? Yeah, well, a little Europe thrown in. Okay. So not exclusively, but mostly was right. Sure. 
Um, but if you are an antique collector today and you are a um, very puritanical, one could say, antique collector, yeah. um, you're probably going to say that anything prior to 1830 um, in America, yeah. and probably anywhere, uh, is an antique. Yeah. Anything after, it's kind of up in the air. And the reason being is around 1830, the Industrial Revolution started. Yeah. People stopped using like dovetail joints that they sawed by hand or, or yeah. whittled down by hand and using wooden pegs and started using machines. Yeah. Well, not stopped, but yeah. R- well, it fell to the way For mass manufacturing. Exactly. So this advent of mass manufacturing led to a huge boom in, um, in, in production, coupled with this new interest post like 1876 in early American furniture. Mm-hmm. And so a revival of these uh, styles, right? Yeah. So you have mass manufacturing and a revival of interest in in early American styles, meaning that you have a lot of reproduction furniture being produced. Yeah, but reproduction furniture is is what you want is the real deal. Right, which is period. So period is something made in the style of the period in the age, in that age. Like Queen Anne. Sure, not, not Queen Anne reproduction no. or Chippendale reproduction, which, by the way, is the um, sexiest furniture period in American <laughs> history, if you ask me. Yeah. Those, uh, the little cuffs uh-huh. and nothing but. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All I picture when I hear that is Swayze and, and Farley. Uh, Farley. <laughs> what a classic one. Uh, Heppelwhite, Sheraton, Duncan Fife, just to name a few. Yes. Of our heroes. Yeah, those are the, those are the big ones, and I'm sure if you're really into this, you could you can be like Duncan Fife. Yeah, I go for Duncan Hines. Yeah, Duncan Sheik. <laughs> remember that guy? It sounds really familiar. He had, he was a singer. He had a song. Which one? I can't remember. He was he's a one hit guy. Okay. Well, Chuck. Yes. Uh, if you are getting into antiques, right? You you probably already know all this stuff. I'm way into it. But let's say let's say that you are you really. Uh, no. Okay. I'm into walking around antique, uh, flea markets, but I'm not, I don't know, you know, what I'm doing. I just like tooling around and poking things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, I think Billy Bob Thornton uh-huh. wrote possibly one of the greatest lines in the history of film when he said something about, he made, um, Dwight Yoakam say in Sling Blade that he can barely drink a glass of water around a piece of antique furniture. <laughs> Dwight, God, Dwight Yoakam was so awful and so funny <laughs> in that movie at the yeah. same time. It's a good line. Um, I like walking around antique places, too. Uh, I don't like encountering antique wheelchairs or antique medical equipment. Oh, I love that stuff. It's so freaky. Well, it's, I don't use it, but uh, yeah. Well, you really shouldn't. Like it's probably it. not sterile any longer. Yeah. Um, but okay, so let, let's say that you are not completely versed in, in antiques and what to look for. We're going to give you a brief primer here. And since we are owned by Discovery Communications, yeah. a.k.a. the Discovery Channel. Parent company. We get to draw from the company well and talk to people once in a while who have shows on Discovery. Specifically in this one, a guy named Paul Brown who uh, heads up a show called Auction Kings, right? Yeah. He owns a Gallery 63, which is literally just up the road a piece from us on Roswell Road. Yeah, I'm going to have to visit that. And he is a an auction king. I've seen it myself with my own eyes. <laughs> and right. we talked to him, actually. Uh, so he's going to come in a little bit um, here or there. Yeah, when you hear someone that sounds like they're on the telephone and it's not us, that'll be Paul. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll tee him up a little better than that, but that's a good rule of thumb, I think, for this one. Certainly. Um, but what Paul says and what it, what it, it expresses in this article, uh, how antiques work, um, is that the first way to differentiate a, a real antique, a period piece from a reproduction piece, um, 
and, and kind of get an idea of how much value this thing's going to hold ultimately mm-hmm. is just by looking it over. That's yeah. the first best thing you can do is take a really good hard look at it, right? Yep. So uh, what are some of the things we're looking for? Well, uh, just at first glance, I would say overall condition, like what kind of shape it's in. And this is not to determine whether it's real or fake. This is just if, if you're assuming it's a real antique because apparently high-quality fakes – don't be afraid of that because it's pretty rare to, to pass one off, to try and pass one off. Right. Although Paul said in our interview that he just came across one, right? Like he had gotten Today. off a call with yeah. a buddy who informed him that something he was thinking about or somebody was trying to sell to him was, in fact, a fake Fabergé. Yeah. Like right before we interviewed him. Yep. So he said it does happen. It's very uncommon, especially with furniture too. Sure. It's so difficult to, to do this. So what you're really looking for is not necessarily a counterfeit. Yeah. But a reproduction, right? Exactly. So um, here here's, here are a couple of tips that Paul gave us, right? A cursory glance will tell tell a lot of tales. I mean, even to a, to an inexperienced eye, if you open up the drawers and you see their you know nails or. Um, uh, holding it together rather than dovetails and, and uh, mortise and tenon joints, then you know it's probably of later manufacture. Um, you know, n- uh, evenly, evenly cut nails were not even made until you know this century, not this century, last uh, the 20th century. It probably that most nails were handmade, and so if you got a lot of evenly cut nails, looks like they were driven in there with a nail gun. You know, that that's a big that's a big tip off. So there's a couple of things to look for, right? Yeah, I mean, craftsmanship, how it was put together is, uh, I mean, there's still craftsmen today doing things in the old school way, but yeah. by and large, when you look at the joints and the tools, uh, what might leave marks. Yes. Um, like, the hardware used like nails, like Paul said. Yeah. So that's what you're going to look for to, to determine if it was, you know, probably a reproduction or not. And then what the stuff is made out of is actually going to, um, leave a lot of clues too, specifically with furniture, um, the wood used yeah. is very important, right? So, for example, Chuck, you've got um, like walnut. It was very popular with Queen Anne, which apparently ran from the early 18th century to about 1750 when Chippendale took over, right? Yes. We know so much about the wood used in antique furniture. It's amazing. Uh, ma- mahogany came uh, into fashion after that. Right. And then uh, cherry, which is sort of like mahogany. It's just a little paler, very strong and abundant here in the old U.S. of A. Yes. So that was pretty popular as well. Yeah. Uh, oak has always been popular. Uh, yeah, oak was especially popular among Europeans before the beginning of the 18th century. Yeah. And then it, it uh, had some renewed popularity in America around 1900. I personally don't go for oak that much. I like either really pale blonde maple. Do I hate blonde. Do you really like maple? I like just don't like pale. I don't like blonde wood. It reminds me of Ikea. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons I like it, that look. Yeah, it's like, like minimal, it. and it's really cold outside. Uh, and then, Chuck, there's also um, pine, right? Poor pine. Pine is, um, well, let's just go ahead and say it. It's the, the poor person's wood when you're manufacturing furniture. Yeah. You're country folk, you're rural, you just want a chair to sit in. Maybe you're really good at making a yeah. chair, so 150, 200 years later, somebody wants to pay top dollar for that. But for the most part, pine is used for the undersides, the backings. Yeah. Uh, the um, drawers, the insides of a, of a piece of furniture, right? Yeah, but uh, wood floors actually hard to pine floors. That's what we have in our house. That's those are yeah, 
Those are like a find, apparently. There's a guy down in Florida. Um, apparently, there's a logging operation in like the 19th century in Florida, and they would fell this pine and float it down the river to the sawmill. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, something would be, uh, it was so dense, it would just sink. Mm-hmm. And it happened a lot, and they just leave them. But for some reason, the composition of the water, I think it was like a, this brackish combination of, of sea and fresh water. Yeah. Um, somehow preserve these these trees, these huge trees. And there's a company that brings these things up and salvages these this nineteenth century heart pine and sells it for like top dollars lumber. Yeah. We have had this exact conversation before. <laughs> it was a while ago though. Which which podcast? Uh, it was dude? a long time ago, but it bears saying, I think. I think I'm going insane. Because it's so cool. So uh <laughs> I was like, why are you laughing at I know. Me? Uh, but I like pine, so that's why I said poor pine. Okay. Um, plywood and particle board, that's a dead giveaway that it's uh, not an antique. Don't be stupid. As are staples, we should mention. Staples are a hallmark of 20th century manufacture. Yeah, exactly. Condition of the wood, you should look at that because well, wood shrinks. Yeah, so it shrinks and it leaves a lot of clues, right? Sure. So, you know, the bottom of a drawer, mm-hmm. Oh, you know how in a really a good construction it's kind of slatted in? Yeah. So as it shrinks, it's not going to be flush any longer. Yeah. And not only will that shrinkage be a dead giveaway, but that that portion, the, the shrunken part, the now exposed part, should be lighter in color yeah. than the stuff that's been exposed to underwear for the last 200 years. Underwear. Yeah. <laughs> So you put drawers. Um, also, the, you know, they used to use uh, pegs a lot of times to assemble furniture. So if if the pegs are have worked their themselves out a little bit, that's probably a good uh, sign that there's been some shrinkage going on <laughs> in the underwear drawer. In the underwear drawer. Uh, what else? We talked about pegs, dovetail joints. I think Paul mentioned dovetail joints and mortise and tenon joints are really, you know. A, a hallmark of early craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. So you look for those uh, tools. Sand, hand sanding is going to look different than machine sanding. Yes, as is a hand saw uh, rather than like the perfect straight edge of a sawmill saw. You can actually, if you know what you're doing, you can kind of roughly date what, like the age of your piece of furniture by the saw marks, right? Yeah. Um, so you're going to want to look at the back of a chair or the drawer. It's an inconspicuous area that they probably didn't bother to sand. Um, if there are straight, irregular marks, that's pre-1830. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's straight, even marks, that means that it was around 1830, uh, sawmills were, were cutting yeah. these straight, even marks. Perfectly straight. And then circular marks came in about 1850 when the Industrial Revolution was really starting to take off. Yeah, and people like... Our furniture doesn't have to be square anymore. Yes, exactly. You know what really took me in this one was <laughs> when I read this sentence, uh, nails were originally made, forged individually. I mean, does that really hit home? You think how many nails it takes to build a structure? Yeah. And the blacksmith had to make every nail yeah. one at a time. That's why the blacksmith was usually the man to go crazy on the rest of the town and kill everyone in their sleep. Yeah, with something made of heavy metal probably. <laughs> That's what I would use. Uh, where are we here? Buying well, them? You want to talk about buying antiques? Yeah, and um, we should probably say that, you know, if you're into antiques, especially if you're really into antiques, you're probably doing it at least partially for profit, right? Yeah. I Hoping mean, to maybe make a little money off of it. Well, Paul pointed out that you should buy, you should only buy something if you like it. E- excellent point. I thought but that was a great point. But usually you're looking, you know, you think it's worth something as well. Right, and we asked him about value, like how does an antique get valued, and here's what he said. 
worth is what you can get somebody to pay for it on a given day, not what an you know insurance company or a museum or, or in, you know an, a quote expert says it's worth. So you know what, what the, the biggest factor is supply and demand. How many people in the audience want it? You know, I bring something up that five people want. It's going to bring more than than somebody might have thought it was worth. If it comes out and it you know only one person wants it or nobody wants it, well then it's going to bring less. But the reality is that that's what it was worth that day in this building. So you know it, it's it's just kind of a fluid dynamic. Worth is a is a real funny thing. It's 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 like uh, trying to nail Jello. So that was Paul once again. Josh. Could you tell he was on the phone? He was on the phone. Uh, if you if you don't know anything and you want to learn something about antiques, here's some advice from HowStuffWorks.com. Just start buying things no. willy-nilly. No, go to a museum because museums are a great place to – you're going you're gonna to know it's real. It's authenticated by a pro. It's probably going to be grouped by either the manufacturer or the period, so you get like a really uh, specific view of what you're looking at it. And then – Probably be identified by the maker, and you might have a docent there that has some like cool history. So that's a really good place to learn about this stuff. Yeah, there's usually somebody there you can say, what does this mean, or why is that there? And they go, move along. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the next thing you know, that chair's not there any longer because you just <laughs> yeah. exposed it as a fraud. Yeah. Much like the um, Brewster chair, right? Yes. Have you heard about this? Did uh, I talk about it in another podcast or something? No, I, that's known as the greatest hoax <laughs> of all time, greatest antique hoax of all time. Greatest antique furniture hoax of all time. Let's get specific here, huh? Oh, really? Is that? I didn't know that. Well, think about it. It's a chair. Surely there's other antique hoaxes. Well, this is the greatest. This is the Ali. This is the O.J. Simpson trial of antiques. So the Ford Museum was taken by a chair that was supposedly created by uh, pilgrims from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, right? Yeah, but they weren't taken by the chair. They were taken by LaMontagne, Armand LaMontagne. He sounds like a fake <laughs> furniture guy. He sounds like a forager. <laughs> Armand LaMontagne yeah. faked the Brewster chair just to see if he could fool the experts, and he did. Yeah, uh, which apparently is quite popular, and especially was in the 70s. There are hoaxes all over the place. Have you seen F is for Fake? No. Okay, you know, our buddy recommended this movie. It's the Orson Welles documentary on art forgery. Okay, so we saw it, right? You mean I watched it? Oh, really? It's very. <laughs> Was this his really TV show? Interesting. No. It's oh, the, okay. It's the who's? Well, I thought he was talking about the Orson Welles TV show when he had Burt Reynolds on. No, but it's, it's it's in the it's in a similar style. It's really edited very strangely, right. but but the content of it is um, Clifford Irving, the guy who faked the biography of um, Howard Hughes. Oh, right, right, right. Also wrote a biography on a great art forger named Elmir. And Elmir is like this guy who's like, I just do this to show that all of the experts are idiots and I've never signed anything and I right. just toss everything. And his biographer, who actually turns out to be a hoax himself, Clifford Irving, is like, that is not true. That guy is fraudulent and he's making money off of it. But it, it makes a good point that we, you said, in the museum, you're going to be able to probably rely on it being legitimate. Sure. That's but where you can really learn. The point of this movie is that's not necessarily true. I mean, like, if you can pass something by the experts, yeah. then it's legitimate in, in just about everyone's eyes. And that's that true. apparently is fairly rampant in the art world. Yeah. Well, the Brewster chair, though, they uh, they put it through an x-ray, and they, were, and they were all of a sudden, they were like, ah, yeah, LaMontagne. Yeah, LaMontagne had said, like, you know, I... I faked a chair like several a couple decades ago and you bought it somebody bought it and, and now they use that chair though as an example of 
how to be not be duped, I guess. What do they? What does Oprah call that? A learning moment or a teaching moment? Yeah, I think something like that. Yeah. So, uh, if you have learned a few things here and you do want to buy antiques, where should you go? Uh, well, you said the museums, and then you're ready to buy. And just start the, anywhere. You can if you go to a small town in small in in America, mm-hmm. and you close your eyes and just start walking forward, and don't get hit by a car going around the square. Yeah, you're going to run into an antique store. Yes, and uh, depending on the size of the shop, if it's like a smaller shop, then that means probably that the shop owner picked out all the antiques because it's things that they like and things that they think will sell. Or like a flea market, they'll usually have little booths, and uh, you can rent out your own little booth and sell stuff. So you, you'll probably get a, like a big wide variety there. That's right. Um, where else? Well, auctions. If you well, want, if you want to add a little zing right. to your antiques. Or your antique buying experience? Experience, right. Go to, go to an auction. The auction is very much like a, a, an experience, and you get to buy stuff too, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we talked to Paul about this. We'll bring him back in a second. But if you want to really kind of hone your haggling skills or you know, just kind of know your limits, you could start off in a small store and just go basically abuse the store owner yeah. and then hone them. Go to a couple of auctions. And bada boom, bada bing, you might be ready. But um, this is what you're in for. It's not nearly as um, scary as uh, we've been made to believe, apparently. What, auctions? Yeah. Listen listen to Paul Chuck. An auction can be, uh, by its nature, almost I think maybe Hollywood did it, or I don't know what happened exactly. But um, you know, a lot of people are intimidated by the auction process. What I always encourage people to do is come in early, you know, maybe come in the week before and take a look around, preview you know, take some measurements, kick the tire, so to speak. Open the drawer, see if they're dovetailed, see if it's if you're buying, or if you're potentially buying what you think you're potentially buying. Ask questions because we're always here to answer them. And you know, if I don't know, I'll say I don't know. But if I do know, I'm happy to share. And so is my staff. But you know, and then as the auction day approaches, you know, you come in, get settled in, and kind of watch it, kind of get a feel for it. It's a rhythmic thing, and each auction is dynamic and fluid. And, it's almost organic the way it kind of grows, and you see, okay, these things are going high, those things are going low. Kind of watch it a little bit, and then just don't be intimidated to, to bid. Don't don't let it get you know to your head. Just kind of play play the game. It's like going to the casino, sort of. You kind of get a rush out of it. It's fun. So that was some good advice. Like they'll they'll usually have a display period where you can go check it out up close before the auction. That's right. And if you've never been to an auction, it can get caught up in it. You know, have you ever been to an auction of any kind? Uh, silent auction at a church. It was uh, very no, low no, no. pressure. I mean, one where the guys, you know, doing the whole thing. Cattle auction. I've been to those before. <laughs> Did you buy four each cattle auction? <laughs> I kid you not. Did you buy a cow? No, I just no. watched. I'm just a fan. So you want to check it out beforehand, know exactly what you want, what you're willing to pay, and don't get caught up in the auction fever because, uh, as Paul pointed out, and as anyone knows, something is worth what someone's going to pay for it, and, and, and if. You got all these people bidding on it. It's just like eBay. It's the same thing. You get all these. I never understood the eBay people that, you know, an auctions for like a week and on day one they start throwing bids in. Yeah, I've never understood that either. Well, sellers love it because it just drives up the price. Right. But I, I mean, as a, as a buyer, it doesn't make much sense. <laughs> None at all. No. On eBay, I, I go in the last like second and a half is my first bid. Right. And we, we also talked to Paul about, um, you know, what what you should buy or uh, if there's something in your home. And he was saying, like, th- it's very surprising how something that seems like it would never sell or something you take as ordinary commonplace because you grew up around it and it's now in your home and you walk past it every day, that that suddenly takes on value when a guy like him 
creates a market by taking a, a seller and putting them together putting his stuff in front of buyers, right? Yeah, right. So so you're absolutely right. I mean like uh there there things do have value even if they don't seem like they have value and for sure. You can make some dough at an auction or you can spend a bunch of dough at an auction. You can also do an internet auction which requires a tremendous amount of faith. Yeah. I mean eBay has their little rules of you gotta be on the up and up, but sure. you can really kinda do anything on there if you want. Probably. Yeah. yeah. There's antique shows. Yeah. That are, you know, like this weekend in North Georgia, there's a show in the Georgia Mountain Fairgrounds. It's a big deal. Everyone brings their stuff. And you getting kickbacks from them? It's once a year. No, I just made that up. And uh, obviously, estate sales. Keep your eyes peeled in the newspaper and Craigslist and stuff for estate sales. You yeah. can get some good finds there. The cool thing about estate sales, especially if you, if you find an estate sale and the sign for it is on like a piece of poster board with a black Sharpie. That means it's a yard sale. That means that it's <laughs> well, it, it could be there. There could be some really great stuff there, and it's yeah. being sold by people who don't know anything. Yeah, that's true. And there's probably no reserve price, which is the minimum bid that will be accepted. Yeah. Um, so yeah, estate sales can be treasure troves, especially if you like stuff that smell like um, the elderly. Right. <laughs> can we say that? I think so. Mothballs. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you're checking things out at these places, look for a signature of the maker uh, to help authenticate it. That's kind of a dead giveaway. If you see like a brand uh, on furniture, like on the underside or um, on glassware and ceramics, it's usually uh, on the on the bottom. Uh, what else? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That there's there should be a signature there because the difference, the only difference really between a reproduction and a counterfeit, mm-hmm. uh, is the stamp of the craftsman. Yeah. Right. The mark of the craftsman saying like. I made this in 1995. Right. I'm not trying to pass it off as something made in 1895. Sure. Yeah, well, sometimes there's other documentation, too, that someone will include. Like, this is uh, a photo of my great-great-grandmother with this chest of drawers or shiffer robe. And um, here's a... It, Holding here's, a Confederate pistol. Right. And here's... Uh, it's included in the will from 1895, too. And there's a letter um from my great grandfather to my great grandmother about the shifferobe and I'm going to give you all this saying bust up that shifferobe to help uh, to help uh document that it is in fact worth something yes and if you have that much documentation you're in like flame because uh apparently uh, being able to prove provenance especially famous provenance can apparently just drive the price up oh yeah sure um, there's a story in this article about a, a person who attended the 2002 uh Tucson Antiques Roadshow event, uh-huh. and showed up with a uh, Ute first phase chief's blanket, which is rare enough. Like this thing was appraised at three hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, but the person said that it once belonged to Kit Carson, but couldn't prove it. Right, but had he or she proven it, then uh, it would have increased the value by another one hundred and fifty grand, just because Kit Carson slept in it for a while. Right, pretty sweet, huh? Yeah, there's a. I look at a lot of Craigslist guitars, you know, just. I'm not in the market, but I always just look, and there's always, every day, there's always some dude that has a really cheap, cruddy guitar, and he's like, it was signed by the Kip Winger. (laughs) And there's just this scrawl and Sharpie on it. And, you know, they're asking like 500 bucks for a $100 guitar. I'd pay for that. With Kip Winger's signature. Winger, yeah. Yeah. Maybe Don Dockin, too. Uh, What else can you look for, Josh? If you have a CT scan in your house... Or an X-ray machine, <laughs> right? Or infrared analysis or ultraviolet analysis, you can do it that way. Yes, if you're so lucky to have those kind of things in your house, in your home, or your medical clinic. Or look at the antique dealer. If they're on the up and up, they're probably a member of one of the professional 
associations. And then also, if you follow Paul Brown's advice and buy what you like, and you're, you're pretty much buying for yourself, uh, then you may end up using your antiques, displaying it, keeping it out in the open in your normal house. And if you do that, you're going to want to keep up with it, right? Oh, sure. So if you have an antique clock, you're going to want to wind it regularly. Yeah. Uh, if you have a rug or a blanket or something like that, maybe up on the walls, better place than on the floor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and uh, then other uh, kind of um, more fragile stuff like books, sheet music, manuscripts, um, you want to store these upright, mm-hmm. out of the sun. Yeah. You want to make sure there's no newspaper press in between them. Highly acidic, bad for an antique book. Probably not in the basement or the attic. You want a good, n- neutral temperature. Yeah. Your books want to be in the same climate you're in. Yeah. Did you like that? I did. That's a t-shirt right there. Uh, photographs, you should store in uh, their own individual envelope and then that envelope in a box. Yeah. Don't like... Out of the sun. Yeah. Don't stick them all together. And, like, put a brick on top of them. <laughs> they're going to end up being a gooey mess. It's not a good way to store your photos. Uh, and you're also going to want to buy a nice pair of cotton gloves when you start collecting antique photographs of yeah. any kind. Sure. Whether it's glass or metal, daguerreotype, if you're into Matthew Brady. Or being a mime. Remember the Brady Bunch where it turned out that Matthew Brady was related to Mr. Brady? And they showed, like, a, a picture. It was a daguerreotype of Abraham Lincoln in the background is Mike Brady. Yeah. That's a good one. I do remember that. I'm like, this is like the second Chris Farley reference. Yeah. We did the Chippendales thing, and then like the, remember when he uh, attacked Scorsese? He's right. like, do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> you got anything else? Is that it for auctions and uh, antiques and that kind of thing? I think it is. We want to give a hearty thanks to Paul Brown. Congratulations and good luck. It's nice to see another Atlanta boy making good. That's right. right? Oh, yeah. Um, And uh, we're going to drop by Gallery 63 one day. Maybe get a picture made with him. How about that? He invited us so it wouldn't be like stalking. Sure. And, uh, you know, check out Auction Kings, obviously. If you want to learn more about antiques, you can type the word antiques or antiquities, as it's uh, also called. Antiques is slang for antiquities. You know that? Oh, is it? Yeah. Uh, you can type that in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, the dusty old search bar in need of polishing found in our attic. Right? Yes. That's what I'm trying out. How's it work? I think it's great. Uh, that brings up, then, listener mail. I'm going to call this uh, polyamory. A polyamorous young lady. Yeah, hello from a polyamorist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hi guys, today I was feverishly sewing tiny pieces of silk together and cursing myself for attempting such an elaborate Christmas gift for my sister when why would anyone want multiple spouses uh, started playing. I put down my thimble and listened even more intently than usual for I myself am a polyamorous. I'm a 21-year-old female living in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which I believe is in America's hat. I've flown over that place. I have two partners, Jesse and Kumaran. And uh, of two, three and two years, respectively. Jesse and I live together. Uh, we all happen to be humanitarian atheists. Jesse and Coom have been friends since well before I met either of them, but they do not have a physical relationship together. Uh, both of them are able to pursue relationships with other people, and I have had a lady friend in the last three years to boot as well. Uh, to minimize the risk of STIs, we maintain a fluid bond, and no one has intercourse with someone outside the bond without an STI test. 
Uh, jealousy has never been an issue for some reason. Jesse actually encouraged me to start dating Coom, and when Jesse was dating his lady friend, I was really pleased and excited. Uh, all of our parents know we are out to our coworkers and friends. I have no desire to get married, but I know of many polyamorous families who do or are. Uh, I would say the benefits of polyamory, for us at least, as a 20-something family with no children, boils down to more. More people to love, uh, more people to be loved by, more sources of support, more ideas, more perspective, more Christmas gifts, and most importantly, more people to gun down zombies <laughs> and left for dead. Is that one of the uh, safe places, one of the safe areas in the zombie apocalypse? Saskatoon? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, three shotguns are better than two. Sure. I would also like to point out that living communally where everyone has sexual access, quote-unquote, to everyone else is relatively rare in polyamory. Uh, more commonly, it's just three or, or four-person relationships or, quote-unquote, open relationships or even primary and secondary relationships. So that... And tertiary. ...is from uh, Lydia. Well, thanks a lot, Lydia. Um, it is very nice to have that little peek into your life. Thank you up there. Plus, also, she left out in Saskatoon. It gets really cold up there. Yeah. Real cold. I imagine a three-person snuggle is uh, pretty warm. Yeah. It's like three-dog night. Do you know that's where that came from? The Aborigines in Australia. On a particularly cold night, they would sleep with three dogs around them. The three-dog night is a really, really cold night. And that's where the band got their name? Yes. Okay. Uh, if you have any cool, interesting stories, we didn't really touch about touch on it, but if we if you have any cool stories about something that was found in your attic or in your neighbor's attic that turned out to be really valuable and cool, mm -hmm. we want to hear about it. And in the meantime, here's a little um, watching homework for you. Everyone go see The Red Violin, probably the coolest auction movie of all time. Have you seen it? No. Oh, Chuck, you got it. It's in the queue. Okay. Uh Anyway, send us your cool stories. Put it in an email, spec it on the bottom, and send it to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?